Colossians chapter 1, and stand up and we're going to read just a few verses out of there. We're going to start in verse 24. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor striving according to His power which mightily works within me. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we do thank You uh, just for Your Word. We thank You for, for Jesus Christ, Lord, that You are our all. Lord, and, uh, just for the opportunity that we've had to, to celebrate Jesus in song. And now as we come and look at Your Word, we just ask that You would have Your way in our hearts. Uh, that you would encourage and build up our faith, Lord, that you would be exalted and glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So, uh, it's great to, to get the chance to share with you all again. Uh, this has happened quite a bit over the last few months. Uh, and so, Charlie is in Pennsylvania uh, officiating a wedding. And so, he asked me to fill in. And we do have over at His Hill, we're about to start summer camp today. Uh, all of our summer volunteers have been eagerly training for the last two weeks. And they're excited and nervous and don't know what to expect when suddenly uh, lots of little kids come and they're responsible for them. It's going to be great. Uh, and so we appreciate your prayers for that. Uh, again, it's, there's, just, there's so much... Uh, that's, that's just a factor as we go through the, the whole virus situation and figuring out the, the requirements there. And so as we have more uh, regulations that we're, we're following, we just ask for wisdom and prayers and prayer that no one would get sick, uh, that we'd be able to, to run camp all summer. And so we love getting to share Jesus with the kids that come. Um, as I was thinking through... What to, to share, it's Father's Day, I'm not going to do a Father's Day message, uh, but I, I did just want to mention, you know, just again, the, the joy and privilege and honor it is to both be a father and to have a father, uh, and, and just that we as fathers would not take that, uh, that responsibility and that privilege for granted, uh, but would thank the Lord for it and take it seriously uh, and also, just as Kyle just did a moment ago, that we would honor the fathers that the Lord has given us uh, and, and just celebrate and thanking them for all they've done. And it's all intended to direct our hearts to our good and perfect Father. 
as I was thinking yesterday about Father's Day, uh, couldn't help but, but think, you know, just how both being a father and being a son, uh, as a son, you, know, you, you get older, and, uh, and especially I felt like in high school and in college, I started to be more aware of the faults of my dad. Uh, and then I became a dad, and I was like, wow, my dad was awesome. Good job. <laughs> Uh, and, and both as we look at the fathers that the Lord's given us and uh, as the Lord allows us to become a father, we, we again, I think, just appreciate so much more uh, the, the goodness of the Lord and that innate desire that every one of us has for a father, you know, that God's designed us in that way and that he meets that, that need, that desire. And so... Thank you, dads, for the, the work that you are doing and loving your families well and loving your kids well and continue to press on in the Lord. My youngest daughter, I have four daughters, uh, if, in case you're visiting. Uh, our oldest is nine and our youngest is three. And so I always tell stories about my girls when I get to preach. Uh, and one day they're going to be embarrassed about it, but... At least the younger ones are too young to be embarrassed yet, so it's still happening a lot. Uh, my youngest, the other day I was carrying her into her bedroom, and she's three years old, and she looks like she's two because she's so tiny and petite. Uh, and, and as I was carrying her, her name's Lena, and I said, Lena, are you always going to be my tiny little girl? You know, dads always ask their little girls that. That's, you have to ask them that question. And she says, no, daddy. I'm going to be a teenager soon. <laughs> say, what? <laughs> no, you're not supposed to say that. Um, and, and those of you that have teenagers, you're, you're thinking like, yeah, she's prophetic. You're going to blink and she's going to be a teenager. Uh, but for those of us that still have really young, only young kids, uh, we're thinking, wow, it seems like I'm repeating the same day over and over and over again. Uh, and, and yet I know that one day I'm going to wake up and it's going to feel like it just went by in the blink of an eye. Uh, and how, how life moves on. I think it's one of the hardest things about grief uh, and losing someone that you love is that you, your world has crashed and you feel like it should stop, but it doesn't. Everybody else wakes up the next day and keeps going. And you're hurting inside. Because life moves on. It keeps going. And with that process that happens, there's always change taking place. And, and we know a lot in this season about change, uh, that, that it just more and more things keep changing. Major Thomas, the founder of Torchbearers, uh, international ministry that I'm a part of, uh, he he has a, a statement that he wrote years ago, and it's kind of like the vision statement of, of torchbearers. And in the very beginning, he says this. He says, truth is as timeless as God himself. It never changes. As we think about how quickly things change in our own lives and the world around us, uh, I'm reminded of the, the sweetness of the reality that the Lord never changes, and truth never changes. What was true in reality yesterday is true today. What was true 2,000 years ago is still true today. 
that truth does not change. Despite what others that the world around us may say, truth does not change. It's timeless. I was just speaking with someone yesterday about how, you know, at this point in 2020, we're all just waiting for the next thing to happen because so many things have happened. Every month or every other month, something significant in the world happens. And so we're just waiting for the next one. We're so used to change. And as we face the, the changes around us, I think of that, that old song that says, On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. And in the turmoil, my feet just want somewhere to stand that's not going to change. Because there's so many unknowns. And so as I was praying about what to share this morning, uh, you know, oftentimes, well, my, my prayer is first, Lord, what would you have me share from your word for those that are going to be listening? Uh, and then my, the second half of that prayer is, what do you want me to, to study for my own heart, to really focus in on for myself? And so it's, there's some selfish motivation there in praying about what to, what to preach on. What do I get to study? And, and the thing that, that really came to, to mind, I think the word laid on my heart, was this idea of the truths that never change, specifically the truth of the gospel, the person of Christ. And in my own life, just having that, that need for certainty for tomorrow. What is not going to change? I am not a planner. Uh, if you spend much time with me at all, I am not thinking about uh, the, the things that I'm going to do tomorrow or the things in my future. Uh, the furthest I plan is that I know tomorrow I'm going to wake up and I plan on reading my Bible and drinking coffee. Like, that's about it. Uh, and beyond that, the day is the Lord's. Like, well, whatever happens, then we'll just roll with it as it comes. But I am not somebody that, that is really detail-oriented in planning out my days. And so with that, I, I'm not a worrier. Uh, I'm not somebody that gets worried really easily or anxious. And I think of myself as pretty laid back and easygoing. And some of that is personality, or a lot of that is probably personality. I hope some of it's faith and just trusting the Lord. Uh, but, but it takes a lot to unsettle me, and yet these past few months have been difficult. And I think especially this past month, I've just been more on edge. And it's strange for me, a strange feeling to, to feel that anxiousness about the world around me in the future. And so I come to Colossians chapter 1, and I want to walk through this a little bit, speaking to this unchangeableness of Christ. And starting in verses 25 and 26, I'm going to read these again. He says, Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints. And he mentions at the end of verse 25 this preaching of the word of God, and he hasn't really elaborated on that yet, but he's about to. In the rest of this passage, what is this word that he's been given to preach? And we're going to go through that. 
Uh, and in verse 26, he mentions the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations. And you think, okay, when someone tells you a secret, how hard is it to keep that secret for a day? You know, especially in middle school. But, you know, when someone tells you something that nobody else knows, then there's that itch to get to share something. Uh, I, I don't like surprises unless I know about them. And when, when, when people have, the, they're on the end about a surprise, they really are tempted or they, they lure somebody and say, hey, I know something you don't, you know, and this is going to be a great surprise. God had this mystery, this hidden thing that he did not reveal for thousands and thousands of years. And, and it was a secret. He said he kept it hidden for generations and generations. That's discipline. That's self-control. Do you think the thing that the Lord had that he was keeping secret was a good thing? You better believe it was. It was the way that he was going to bring redemption to the world restoring humanity back into his image in the way that he always intended them to be. This was exciting stuff, and yet God didn't fully reveal how he was going to restore humanity, how he was going to deal with sin. He dropped hints along the way, just enough to keep people continuing to believe, yes, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. God hasn't forgotten his promise. We're waiting but God kept something hidden as a mystery for thousands of years. And yet, people were trying to figure out what the secret was. If you flip over to 1 Peter, it says that all these guys that were writing, these prophets, they were trying to find out what this mystery was. What it was that God had been alluding to. In 1 Peter verse 10, he says... As to this salvation, this is chapter 1, verse 10. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, they made careful searches and inquiries. So there are these prophets, and they were prophesying about what was to come. God gave them a word, and they would speak that word to the people, and then the prophets would go back and be like, what, what does that even mean? You know, and they're searching in the Old Testament, they're searching the scriptures that had already been written, and they're saying, Lord, how is this going to work out? I hear something about a virgin birth. How is that going to work out? And they're hearing these different things that God is telling them about the future salvation of his people. And they're making careful searches and inquiries. And he goes on. And he says, verse 11, they're seeking to know what person or time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things, which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. The angels themselves long to look and to know how God was going to fulfill His promise they made in Genesis 3.15, right after Adam and Eve sinned and they were deceived by the serpent. And then God shows up and he gives them their consequences, their curses, and he goes to the serpent in Genesis 3.15 and he says that somebody from the seed of the woman, a, a human being who's going to be born on earth, crush the serpent's head. And the serpent is going to bruise his heel. 
And God says that. And then the next generation is thinking, what does that even mean? And I'm sure maybe by that point they've killed some snakes. You know, and they've crushed some snakes' heads. And they're like, well, it's obviously not just a literal thing because I've done this and there's still no salvation happening, uh, even though they may feel saved after killing the snake. But still thinking, how is God going to fulfill this? How is God going to bring about this redemption that he's alluded to? And these men who wrote these first 39 books in the Old Testament, they're looking for and anxiously waiting, searching the scriptures to know about this mystery that he's mentioned. And we get to Colossians and we're starting to read about, and we're seeing the explanation of this. How is God making himself known? You know, we think back in the Old Testament that as people are searching to know what God is doing, we see God show up in Genesis 12 and God reveals himself. There's this mystery and God begins to reveal himself to a person. He shows up to Abraham, who is Abram, and he said, Abram, through you and your descendants, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. So first, there was this first promise in Genesis 3. Serpent's going to be defeated. Sin's going to be dealt with. Reconciliation between God and man is going to happen. And then in Genesis 12, God drops another hint and he says, it's going to be through Abraham's descendants, this family. But God revealed himself to Abraham. And then God reveals himself to Isaac and God reveals himself to Jacob and God is revealing himself to individuals and continuing the promise I haven't forgotten what I'm going to do. It's going to happen. Just wait. We love hearing that from the Lord. Just wait. Wait. And he tells them to wait. When I was about 10 years old, uh, my, my family was living in Maryland. and That's where my mom's from. And my grandparents on my dad's side are in South Carolina. And so we would drive down to South Carolina from Maryland about twice a year, once or twice a year, about a 12-hour drive, depending on who's driving. And when we would, as we would drive down, uh, we'd spend a week there and then, you know, see everybody, head back and, and continue on. And one winter, we're getting ready to, to go and we're packing up our stuff. And then my dad comes into our room as, as us boys, because I have two brothers. We're packing our stuff and my dad says, bring a swimsuit. And we're thinking, it's winter. Like, South Carolina can be hot, but not in the wintertime. It's still normal. Like, it's cold. It's too cold to swim. But he says, bring a swimsuit. And we're like, okay. He leaves the room. What do we do? We immediately start trying to figure out what's going on. Did you hear anything? Why? Where are we going? We're going to South Carolina. So why do we need a swimsuit? I don't know. And so our imaginations start running wild of all the things that could be taking place. Maybe our grandparents on our dairy farm got a heated pool, which would not happen. But uh, who knows? Why are we needing to bring a swimsuit? So we go and we ask our dad eventually, and he says, you're on a need-to-know basis. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, that's, that's life. And, and so dads get to, to do that with their kids. Uh, and so we get in the car, and we go to South Carolina. We spend a few days there, and then dad says, okay. Get in the car, we're going to Florida. Okay, we can use our swimsuits in Florida, that's great. 
Uh, and, and we were so excited that we got to go to Disney World that, that winter. Uh, but there was this, this thing that he kept hidden from us. And he dropped little hints along the way, but we had no idea. But then when he finally announced what it really was, we were ecstatic. We were so excited for the revelation of this great mystery. And as we, as we think, though, about the fact that, you know, my dad said, you're on a need-to-know basis, and this is how God works with us. You know, I am on a need-to-know basis with the Lord. But I don't like that most of the time. Because what I consider need to know and what he considers need to know often don't line up. And I think, no, Lord, I do need to know. And he says, no, you don't. Not yet. And this is nothing new. This is how God has worked with his people whom he loves from the very beginning. He told Abram, hey, pack up your stuff and start walking. Where are we going? You don't need to know. Okay. He tells David, hey, David, guess what? You're going to be king one day. All right, when's that going to happen? You don't need to know. It's going to be another decade before you're king, but I promise you're going to be king. He tells Peter, Peter, take your net and cast it on the other side. No, but Lord, let me tell you about the situation. I've been fishing all night. And God says, trust me. You're on a need-to-know basis. You simply trust that what I'm instructing you in, revealing to you, is exactly what you need to know. And so that's how the Lord continues to, to engage in us, with us. Am I okay with the Lord directing me on a need-to-know basis? You know, the Lord can be moving us in one direction and suddenly we're told to, to stand still or to actually turn around and go the opposite direction. It doesn't make sense in our minds, but if God is the one who is leading us, then it's always in the right direction. Even if we don't know even what direction it is. If God is the one leading us, then it's always the right way. And this is the approach that the Lord takes about the good news of Jesus. That He reveals it on a need-to-know basis. And at the fullness of time in Galatians 4, He says that He sent His Son he made known how he was going to address sin, bring us back to himself. And for those thousands of years between when he first initially mentioned this promise to when he finally brought Jesus, our Savior, to the world, when he finally came, During those years, kingdoms came and went and societies rose and they fell and uh, and the world kept moving and it kept changing and God wasn't backpedaling, He wasn't reconsidering, He was moving forward with His plan. And for my heart, that's a comfort and that's what I need to hear, that as the world around us continues to move, that the Lord is not backpedaling. He's not, he's not second-guessing what, he what He has put in place and what is taking place in the world. But the world is still going to be moved in the direction of His purposes. And so, as we think about the, 
the gospel of the good news. Going back here to Colossians chapter 1. He talks about this preaching of the word of God. In verse 25. And one thing that he mentions in verse 25 is he says that the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit. So Paul has been entrusted with something that's for the people's benefit. And I think it's important for us to to just remember, because life happens and we can forget, to remember that Jesus is for our benefit and not for our burden. And God's working in our life is for our benefit and not our burden. That God has good intentions in our lives. And He has good intentions in our circumstances. That in the midst of even evil that can take place around us and in our lives, that Jesus is for our benefit. That He intends to be our help in time of need. And so, in in verse 26, reading through that again, He says, The mystery which has been hidden... This is the word that he was given stewardship to, to bestow on others. The mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints. So there's that secret thing that was hidden that's finally been revealed. Verse 27, To whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. So whatever this mystery is, He describes it as the riches of the glory of this mystery. It's marvelous. It's good. What does it mean for something to be glorious? We look at a sunset and we think, that's incredible. We're left in awe. You know, we live up at his hill, so we're on a hilltop. And and we get to see lots of amazing sunsets. And every time I see one, I'm just thinking, this is is incredible. That God would, would make such a beautiful tapestry every night. This is, this is so neat. And, and we think of glory as being that which fills our hearts with wonder. And this mystery is one that is filled with the riches of the glory. And he says, the mystery is this at the end of verse 27. It is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in us. And we think so much about the, the mystery being that God would send His Son to die. But when He says here, the mystery is this, that Christ died for you, He doesn't say that's the mystery that's finally been revealed. He says it. I think what His point is, that was a means to an end the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. But the mystery, what God has intended from eternity past is to provide a way for Christ to come and take residence in the midst of His people, with His people. And again, He kept giving hints of this throughout the Old Testament. That when He first established Israel and led them out of Egypt from slavery, they came into the wilderness. And what did God do? He said, you're going to be My people in Exodus 19. And I'm going to dwell in your midst. So build a tabernacle, and the glory of God comes and dwells among them. That was a miracle. That was the glory of God. And that was the glory of his people, that God himself would dwell among them. 
And then later on, he, they go and they build the temple. And the thing that makes Israel so unique is that their God actually comes and dwells among them in His glory. Because God is always intended to dwell with His people. And then we come to, to the New Testament and we see Jesus come and walk among His people. And He tells His disciples, it's going to be better when I leave. You think this is good, but trust me, it is better for you if I go and return to my Father. And He leaves, and then the Spirit of Christ comes to dwell within the believer. You and I. And He says, this is the mystery that's been hidden from ages past and generations past that's finally been revealed to us. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That the gospel is not only the cross. It's not only the resurrection. The mystery is that the gospel being fully revealed in Christ's coming, Christ's death, His burial, His resurrection, His ascension, and His coming in the Spirit to live in our hearts. And when you read through Scripture, it's not an emphasis on somebody died for you and somebody was resurrected and somebody ascended, but it's the person, Jesus, who died and Jesus who was buried and Jesus who's resurrected and Jesus who ascends. It's not just the event itself that's significant, but it's the person behind the event. It's the miracle has always been that God would dwell with His people. And so for thousands of years, God waited to reveal this mystery of Jesus being united with a believer. And, and He's still doing that today. He's unchanging. He's still living in our hearts, living among His people. And so we can have hope in the unknowns of the future as we consider what's been made known in, in the past. We think about the past works of God and we take hope for the future. I don't have to know what's coming because I know what's already taken place. And so I see the, the history, the track record of what the Lord has done, and there's comfort. And so in verse 27 again, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Jesus didn't save us only so that we would be like Him, He saved us so that He could be like Himself in us. So that He could be Himself in our lives. It's not just a matter of us becoming more like Him, but us relinquishing ourselves to Him. You flip over to Second Peter, and we think about, you know, the Lord came in order to transform us from one degree of glory to another. Paul writes in Corinthians. Uh, but it's, it's also with the intention of His life being manifested in our own lives. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, He says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And Peter's going to share some about this this work that God has done, this mystery in salvation, verse 3. Seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness 
through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. For by these He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises, those promises there that He had made, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. And so He says that we enjoy the grace and the peace of God because of the knowledge of Christ and His indwelling presence in our lives. That Christ has come to live in us so that He can then live through us. And there's nothing more. We think of that those verses there in 2 Peter. He says that God has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. So we know that God has called us so that we would live lives that are reflective of Christ. And so we hear that, and this is what happens. We get saved, and we, we believe that Jesus has died for our sins. And we say, okay, now that I'm saved, I'm going to be a really good person. This is going to be great. I'm so excited that Jesus has forgiven me, and now I'll do good. He says, your salvation, in your salvation... He has given you all that you need for life and godliness, which means that all that you need for life and godliness is not found in just yourself. Now that I've been forgiven, I can just be a different person if I try hard enough. But rather, my ability to be a different person is still coming from the saving work of Christ. God has given us all that we need for godliness. We want to be godly. He says the means for that is in Christ himself. I think of the, the song uh, that we, we sang here recently, one of my favorite songs, and it starts off, What gift of grace is Jesus my Redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. I love that line. There is nothing else for heaven to give us because we have been made perfect and complete in Christ. All of himself coming to reside in the believer so that we could then walk in righteousness. How? By his very life. By his grace. God's intention has always been for His people to live out His image and to bear His likeness, and in Christ He's provided the means to do that. So, a bit of my own testimony. I grew up in a Christian home, and when I was eight years old, I, I came to receive Christ. I was born again. Uh, and, and I knew as a Christian that the Lord wanted me to be like Jesus. Everybody knows, and I was, I was uh, you know, born in the 80s, and so in the 90s, it was a huge WWJD, and it's all about what Jesus would do and being like Jesus. That was the ambition of every young Christian, and probably most old Christians, you know, that we want to be like Jesus. And, and I remember that when I got into high school, that, uh, that I, I just got worn out. Uh, because I knew that he really wanted me to be like him, but I couldn't, and I was trying so hard to just be accepted by other people, and it wasn't working out, and so there was this whole uh, double life that was happening, 
And, and so I just did my own thing. And I remember attending a youth retreat one weekend. And I was just miserable living a, a double life. And I remember the, the speaker gave some kind of altar call. And I was sitting in my seat. And I was a senior in high school. And I was just crying. Uh, I was going into my senior year, and I, I was crying as he was talking, and I knew that my life was empty, and I was just, I was walking in rebellion against the Lord. But I also knew that as, as the Lord was encouraging me to, to just yield to him and let him have his way, I, I said, but Lord, I know when I go home after this retreat, I'm still going to keep doing whatever I want. And it's not going to last, because I know myself. Because I put so much confidence in the ability to be godly being based on my own abilities, my own strength, my own willpower. And my will was weak. And so I was so discouraged. And it was just six months later that the Lord worked in my heart and, and finally I just came to the, the understanding that, yeah, I can't do it. And that's okay. Because my faith is not in my own ability to be able to be godly. That's not what pleases him. What pleases him is faith. Trusting and believing that he really is competent. That he has given me all that I need for life and godliness. Now I go through my journals from when I was uh, the last few months in high school... And that's just, as I was reading my Bible, that's what I was writing about. That God has to be the one to live his life through me. And then I went off to Bible school in Texas, and that's all I was hearing all the time. And I was like, wow, this is crazy. Like, I didn't just make this up on my own, but this is actually taught. Uh, and other people believe this too. And, and it was such an encouragement to my heart. Major Thomas illustrates this idea with a picture of being given a Ferrari, and we as Christians are given this wonderful, powerful engine, so we decide that we're going to push it everywhere. And we're going to push this car around to try to show off to people this great car that we have. And we get exhausted, because we have this great resource of power, but we're not actually trusting, and trusting ourselves to it. We're not appropriating what's been given to us. And that's what so much of us, so many Christians are prone to, to do. What I'm prone to do, my tendency is, God, I've got this. Thank you for your help in the past, but I think I can handle this one. And he reminds me again and again, no, you can't. And so we celebrate the fact that God's truth never changes. Uh, that just as he worked with his people in the past on a need-to-know basis, that's how he's working with us today. Going the direction that God is leading is always the right direction. And the way that he leads is, I, I remember, I'm reminded of in, in Exodus, as they're about to cross the Red Sea. I'm going to turn there really quick, Exodus 14. Uh, when God has led them out of slavery by the miracles of the plagues, and Pharaoh has finally let them go, and Moses is leading them, and they get to the Red Sea in Exodus 14. And as they're waiting at the sea, 
they see that Pharaoh's army is coming behind them, and they, all of a sudden, the Israelites, they just get really frustrated. And they're like, Moses and God, why would you do this? Why would you save us only so that we could die by the Egyptians right after we escape? And as Christians, we, you know, we can feel this. God, why have you saved me, but then I'm just floundering in my godliness, in my walk with you, and I still feel empty. Why would you do it this way? And I love how God responds to them, how, what Moses says. In verse 13, Moses said to the people, Do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. The Lord will fight for you. You stop talking. Stop complaining. He's going to take care of it. And the Lord tells me, John, stop worrying. The Lord is going to take care of it. You be silent. He's got it. He's given you all that you need today to live the life that he's called you to live. And when you go into the, the workplace that's unfriendly towards believers, when you go into to your family life and there's challenges, when you go into summer camp and there's kids and you don't know what to do with them, you know, and as you go into your day today and tomorrow and we think, Lord, this is not what I expected. I, I need to know more information. Why are things going the way that they're going? And he says, keep silent, trust me. Just walk by faith. It's so simple. I've given you all that you need. So trust me. And so this is what my soul has, has needed, my heart's needed over these last weeks and, and months. And then we, I just want to finish on verses 28 and 29. As we walk in Jesus and we see his, his faithfulness time and time again, then it leads to an eagerness and a willingness. In verse 28, we proclaim Him. He doesn't say we proclaim uh, an ideology. He says we proclaim a person. We proclaim Him. Admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to His power which mightily works within me. And we can hear this idea of, you know, we, we need to be still and let the Lord have His way and walk by faith. And then people raise the objection, that's passivity. You know, that you, the Lord wants us to be involved in, in this whole uh, life and walk that He's given us. And I would say it's not passivity. This is what Paul said in verse 29. This purpose also I labor. So Paul is working really hard in proclaiming Christ in this great mystery. He says, I labor for this, striving. How is he striving? According to the power of Christ in him. That his labor is done by faith. By saying, Jesus, I know you've called me to proclaim this message. And I don't have the ability to do it in myself. And so be my strength today. 
And so He's provided all that we need. As we feel incapable of maintaining our own securities, our own godliness, our own circumstances to be a way that's going to, we think, give us peace. Uh, In our incapability, we remember that He's given Himself. And that truth is never going to change. So, let's pray. Father, we thank You uh, that, that as Peter wrote, that we can enjoy the grace and the peace of God as we celebrate the person of Jesus, remember who you are and what you've done. We thank you that you have gone before your people in every generation in the past, and you will continue to do that in each of our lives individually and as a body today. And so I just pray that, again, our our hearts would be encouraged in Jesus and that we would have hope and joy. And praise in Christ's name. Amen.